Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers, episode number seven. Today is Sunday, April 24th. I'm Tony. And I'm Dennis. And we're going to talk to you about pinball video games and tabletop gaming. What have you been doing this week, Dennis? Oh, well, it's been a pretty busy week for me. Um, we've been, well, actually, since the last episode, if I want to go all the way back through two weeks, I'll say we uh, we were both at Pizza West's monthly tournament. That was last weekend. And uh, we actually both got to play against each other. You won two out of You're three. You're right, I won. Two, you, you, did, <laughs> you did relatively well. You, you put me down with your bonus. Um, but Hey, that's all. At least it wasn't an extra ball plunge. Cause that might've actually made me sad. Uh, well, but- let's be honest. I've barely ever beat you when we've played ever. So the one time it actually counts in tournament play to win, it made me feel pretty good. I know it yeah, that I've played. You that cheered, you cheered with, with your glee. And I, and I allowed you, I allowed you to have that glee, but, but ultimately, um, well, I, we both did fairly well. We, uh, we actually both took 10th. So that's. Um, you know, that was about halfway through the field. I think there were 21 players, so we tied at 10th. So, I mean, that was, that's sort of last year, kind of where I was normally ending up on my good nights would be getting through about half the field. So anyway, I, I enjoyed that. Well, and speaking of last year, uh, this was the one year anniversary of me starting to do competitive pinball with you. That's so that right. was 12 months. That's right. Cause I actually started back in February of 2015, but yep. It, it's been a whole year and now all your training has come to fruition and you're you're crushing people like me left and right and i and would ach- don't th- i wouldn't go that far and achieve and achieving true true glory so uh so we had that tournament and let's see other pinball things i've been doing i finally got one of my old ems my wood rail scoreboard got that fixed i think it's fixed it's, it currently was working I, I played it some yesterday uh, i had to replace a coil so it took a while for that substitute part to come and then uh final issue turned out to be going through tracing all the wiring trying to figure out following the diagram as to why it wasn't it wasn't changing from ball one to ball two it was getting confused and it turned out that a a wire came unsoldered and actually that game for whatever reason there the solder is popping on so many wires and i uh, to me it's it's strange because i didn't think solder was ever supposed to pop like that but so anyway finally figured that out and got that running again so i was pleased about that um i've been trying to sell a couple of machines off i think i mentioned that last episode my em that was up for sale three coins is off on a on a on a slow truck to washington state had a out-of-state person uh actually someone in california contacted me he'd seen my ad and he said he had a friend in washington state who wasn't a member of pinside which is the the big pinball forum and that that person was really interested in the three coins so i spoke with him and i i didn't have it set up for delivery i was just going to do a local pickup uh, because i didn't want to deal with a shipper uh but they you know there was there was some pleading and they insisted that the the shippers would handle everything all the packaging and everything and that it really wouldn't be that burdensome for me so beyond having to make sure i could work with the shipper and be around for their scheduled pickup which required a four-hour block uh, i was actually able to get rid of that on friday so off it goes i'm still trying to get rid of xenon but uh, that was that's good. So I needed the space freed up because there was a local person who was selling a Jurassic Park. So I went yesterday and bought that. Uh, it does work. Uh, it has it's had a few issues. One of the the big one that I noticed uh, is the control room 
which is the major mode selection in the game, the Switch isn't always registering. And so I've ordered a new Switch. I don't know that it's the Switch. The the it's it's weird. It's worked kind of loose. It's riveted on. So the rivets seem a little loose. So the switch might not be engaging properly because there's too much space. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I actually did a factory reset of the software today and then the switch started working. So it may have also been something in terms of the programming. I don't know. I'm planning to upgrade that uh, to the Chad Hendrickson custom software. He's done the software for three data East games. And I'm a fan of the Jurassic Park one because we have that at that Pizza West location here currently. So I don't want to go too much into messing around with the code on the original Data East software if I'm just going to replace it. But I did not have access to a modern EEPROM burner that would plug in like USB or anything. So I've ordered one from China and I'll burn my own chips once that arrives, which will probably be sometime by mid-May. So did all that. Then on video games, I'm through Act 1 on Far Cry 4, but I've not been putting a lot of time in it. I actually, I don't think I've played it at all since last Sunday, so it's been a week. And uh, was catching up on some old movies instead. I decided I needed to refresh myself on Predator. I don't know why I chose Predator, but I did. Uh, started Predator 2, but stopped after 10 minutes. I just couldn't get into it. So I rewatched the first Predator, which I really like, and Predators, which I actually think was a pretty good Predator movie. Uh, you know, it was pretty low budget, but there were a lot of practical effects and such. And I think it, it, you know, it's a little, it was a little overly ambitious, but overall, I think it's pretty enjoyable. It captures a lot of the spirit of that first film, but uh, that's pretty much it in terms of summary of the stuff I've been working on. Uh, I do before transitioning to ask what you've been up to over the last two weeks. I do want to thank uh, Don and Jeff over at the pinball podcast. I did listen to one of their, their most recent episode at the time of this recording, at least. And they actually mentioned our show on their show. So uh, for those listening here, if you want a podcast that actually talks just about pinball and not, uh, not about video games and tabletop games as well, you really should check out uh, the pinball podcasts with uh, Don and Jeff as the hosts. Uh, they're very deep in. I think that was episode 79 where we got mentioned. So they've been at it for quite a while. Uh, and it's one I've been aware, aware of for a while. And is actually, I think, the very first pinball podcast I ever listened to was theirs. So go ahead and uh, check them out if you guys are interested in more exclusive pinball content. But Tony, what's going on with you? Well, I've been doing not a whole lot over the last couple of weeks, but uh, uh I did set us up finally a Twitter account. We are now officially at eclectic underscore gamers for those people who are liking the Twitter. Uh, there's not a whole lot there yet, but we're going to be working on it. Uh, I've also been watching some older movies. Uh, I watched The Running Man for the first time in probably a decade, and I think that movie very well might be the epitome of 80s cheese movies. I mean, the lines were as cheesy as it gets. Mm, yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, I couldn't, I didn't remember it being that good of a movie, but just the cheese meter was so much that I just, I loved every minute of it. I was laughing throughout the entire movie. I don't know if I was supposed to be laughing throughout the entire movie, but I was definitely laughing throughout the entire movie. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, in terms of Arnold, uh, I think it's it's a contention for Running Man and Commando in terms of uh, cheesy, campy '80s style action. Um, he was the master, so it's not surprising. And I, yeah, I think a lot of it is is meant to be over the top, tongue in cheek. In terms of, you know, I don't think I've ever read the uh, Stephen King book that it's based on. Actually, the or the story, I think it's a short story. Uh, but anyway, yeah, no, I think yeah, they, I, I think they embraced the cheese with that. 
They did definitely. I haven't read the I haven't read the story either. I actually uh, put it on my Amazon wish list. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and pick it up and give it a try just to see how thing how how it is. I know from like IMDb and this and that that it is nothing like the movie at all. It's supposed to be like completely different, but I still I still kind of want to read it now. Um, I also watched uh, Deep Impact, which was the much more serious version of Armageddon. Um, that movie was not as good as I remembered it being. Um, some of the acting was absolutely horrible, and some of the acting was actually really, really good. Um, I was surprised to see how many people were in that sh- movie that I didn't remember being in that movie. I, like John Favreau was in that movie, and Richard Schiff was in that movie. And, um, there were a couple others that I didn't remember them at all, but they were in that movie. It's been a long time since I've seen that. The, 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 yeah, the thinking man's, uh, uh, disaster or how it sort of came across at the time compared to Michael Bay's work, the Dante's peak to the volcano sort sort of. Yeah, except for, you know, in, in between Dante's Peak and Volcano, I preferred Dante's Peak. And between Armageddon and Deep Impact, I think I preferred Armageddon. Yeah, I've definitely seen Armageddon more times than uh, Deep Impact. I, I, I find it a bit slow. Uh, and there are a lot of characters that it tries to follow that aren't all in the same grouping. So, I mean, Michael Bay knows uh, knows what he's doing when he's putting together those very basic sort of storylines. And it's just it's just trying to sell the spectacle. And I think a lot of people went into Deep Impact thinking it's going to all be about spectacle. And it wasn't. But I don't think it was intellectual enough to really be that much of a thinking movie either. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much how it went. It, I think it tried to balance and it failed to balance. I think if it had gone into a being even more dramatic and more thinking, it might have been better. But it still it, it wasn't a bad little flick to watch. I uh, I also watched, or I should say, I'm I am currently watching as I'm I'm a little over halfway through uh, rewatching The Mummy, and I always that's still a fun movie uh, with. Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. Oh yes, yes, that's it's one of my favorites. It's probably my favorite Brendan Fraser movie. Yeah, it's you know, I probably is my favorite Brendan Fraser movie too. I I mean, he's done he's done a fair number of movies that were fun, but this one was just like the it was just like the perfect note on everything. So I was pretty good with that. Other than that, I've read like six books in the last 2 weeks. And I picked up Transformers Devastation on Steam when it was on sale, and I beat it. And it was fun. I mean, it was nothing super special. Uh, It was a hack and slash, but I'm kind of a sucker for the old Generation 1 Transformers, because those are what I remember from a kid, and it was a lot of fun to run around as Optimus Prime and hack people up and then uh, transform into a truck and smash into them and throw them all over the place. I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. All right. Well, we've both been keeping pretty busy. And so to continue with our busy streak, let's transition into the main meat of our show. And we'll start, as we always do, with the pinball segment. And we have a couple topics picked out for everyone today. We want to talk about, we're just have we going to have two discussions. We're going to start out with the Magnuslings, which is a feature of the premium and limited edition models of the Ghostbusters table. There was some video that was put out on that recently. And then the news that the Big Lebowski has actually started to ship. 
So let's begin with the Magna Slings. Uh, Tony, I believe you've seen the video. I definitely have seen the video. Uh, oh, yeah, I've seen the, I, I've seen the video. I, I've actually watched it three or four times now just to take a good look at what they've got up so far. So I guess uh, I'd ask first, uh, Tony, what, what did you think of the, the video of the slings? I, my own sense was I, when I saw it, I thought it looked, I thought it looked cool. Uh, I know that magnets aren't anything special. They're not in terms of, they're not revolutionary in pinball. They've been used for a really long time in a lot of creative ways, but I think the concept of seeing them replace slings is a unique use of them. And given the theme involves ghosts, I think it makes a lot of sense to do it in the way that they're planning to do it. Yeah, I think it really ties into the theme. I mean, there's not a lot of themes out there where it, I think you could do something that tied in quite so well using what the magnetic slings can give you. I know the uh, I know from reading on forums and stuff, there's a lot of people who hate the concept of them. And they are very unhappy with the looks of it. But I think they look like they could be a lot of fun. I think a lot of games have their... Each game has its own little gimmick that are what really throw it at people and what people really remember. I think those magnetic slings are going to be the ones for Ghostbusters. I mean, it, it, it was... A, I played the Pro, and the Pro was a lot of fun. But I think these magnetic slings are going to make things really interesting. Though I do understand why people could be upset when you're looking at the... Uh, uh, tournament and competition type play because it'll throw another thing in there that you can't quite plan for as much. But watching the video and watching the the ball, you know, bounce off the same sling three or four times, just just reversing itself and then flipping to one side and then flipping to the other and then just kind of stopping and hovering there for a second and then shooting off another direction. I think it really works with the theme. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I I guess I'm not I'm not surprised that there was negative reaction on Pinside. Uh, if anyone ever spends any time reading Pinside, it seems like I think over half of the content is negative reaction to things. I, I'm that's probably an exaggeration, but I, I've never really compared to like video game forums that I participate in. I've never seen so much negativity <laughs> in in a hobby location, but uh, and, and I get some of it, but it was more than I had expected it to be. Uh, I think some of it might relate to the to the early status of the Magnus Slings in terms of how they're coded or whatever the test mode was. So, for example, it was just someone with their hand was rolling the ball and the speeds were really low and only a few angles were tested. And so I don't think we got a full flavor or feel of how those magnets are actually going to operate. I agree with you that the tournament players seeing that are probably going to be perturbed. And part of it may be what the ball behavior specifically was. Part of it may be the fact that it seems like the magnets kick in when you haven't yet actually touched the, the sling. It's not like it's closing a little leaf switch against when the rubbers hit. So in a way, I could see it being explained that, well, with the magnet version, the magnet slings are actually like the slings are even bigger because it's only when you're close to them that it starts to actually manipulate and whereas on the pro model the sling would never interfere with the ball until it actually touched the sling so you actually have a, a bigger corruption zone where the ball could be manipulated and thrown around but i think that it's a lot of this is it just people dislike change uh, there's often a lot of talk uh, on forums 
about a desire to see more innovation in pinball. But at least for a lot of people, they may talk a good game, but they don't really want innovation, in my opinion. I think they actually dislike change more than they want that sort of innovation. And they, this is why we stick with that three-inch flipper, uh, two-sling layout, You know why it was totally safe for uh, Multimorphic and the P3 model to build that in permanently because it's sort of set now in the psyche of the pinball player that that is right, that that is normal. But for, you know, I, I think it's fine that, that there are going to be people disagreeing with this. That's not a problem. There's something called the pro model and it solves all your issues. You can just, if you want traditional slings, get the pro model. If it makes you sad that the art's not the same, then, you know, too bad, but you know, make your pick. But I mean, if that's going to be the issue if you're sort of that hardcore tournament setting or you're, you, that's what you want, then there's a model that's going to satisfy you and it's not going to be, be doing this experimentation. I don't think that the sales of the premium and LEs are going to suffer because this video came out showing this early code on the Magnus Slings. I just don't think it's going to scare that many people off. And if it does, I think it just scares them down to the pro model. It's not like they all of a sudden become non-buyers. So I, I don't see any downside really to Stern doing this. And given that they're the big company and they're the ones that are criticized, I think, the most for not innovating – them doing something like this, especially since the table didn't take the step of incorporating LCD screens or anything, uh, is pretty meaningful. So I'm glad that they showed it. I thought it looked neat. It may it may end up being terrible. I don't know, but I I my hats off to them at least because it's different. Yeah, it, it definitely is. I uh, think that when most people say they want innovation, they want just they want innovation that doesn't change. It's just a slight tweak in modernization. So the change from incandescence to LEDs, the change from DMDs to LCDs, and stuff like that. They want small incremental changes. They're not looking for something radically new that's going to radically change the paradigm that they're used to. Well, sure. The, I mean, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, LCD screen and LED lights don't change the gameplay. But I, I, I mean, how much innovation is it really? It'd be like, oh, well, now, you know, we have a better clear coat. Well, that's great. I, I love the fact that my playfield's not going to get playfield wear, but that's not really when, at least when I'm talking innovation, that's not the, it's like Star Wars. It's not the innovation you are looking for. No, that's not. That's really just uh, modernization and iterization up of something that we already have. It's not really that huge of a deal or that much of a change. It, it's real innovation is going to be major, major changes like what these Magnus links are going to bring. And I mean, this could be a failed test. I mean, there's been plenty of things that have been trialed in the past that haven't worked out and just disappear. This could be one of them. Or this could be the start of something new. It might be something we start seeing more of. Or we might be seeing some things like this, maybe not at the uh, final slings down at the bottom, but set up, you know, on the sides of the cab halfway up or maybe up in mini play fields, stuff like that that could really throw some play up if these work out halfway decent it brings a whole new level and a whole new change that could be done so we will see we will see what people ultimately think they'll vote with their wallets but this theme is great and i i think it's going to resonate and i think the premium models are still going to sell personally but let's transition to our second pinball category big lebowski so there was news um just a little while ago i mean not earlier today but a little while ago indicating uh, there were some photos on pin side is what what caught my eye because i i don't really follow i don't track the big lebowski because it's not a it's not a pin that i've i've been interested in personally but that they, they were boxed up and all slick and tied down to their pallets and ready to be shipped out and i 
it's I it did surprise me. I'm I was expecting it to ship this year, but I didn't think it was going to be this soon. I actually I I don't know why I thought that it wasn't going to be sooner actually, but I just for some reason I had it in my head that it'd probably be in the second half of the year. So I was surprised that it was as early as it was. The news of note was that they were providing some shipping options in addition. So the idea originally was that uh, if you were a U.S. purchaser, and this this company, as we noted before, is based in the Netherlands, the shipment would normally happen by sea, and it'd be like I guess it's like three hundred dollars for the for the United, and I don't recall if that's embedded in the normal price for the sea shipment. I thought it was, but but the there was a catch to that. The they're sending those over in batches. And so I guess the idea is you fill up the cargo container, which requires 40 games. And then when the cargo container is filled, then that ship goes, comes to the U.S. And then you have the shipment from the port to your home. So if you don't want to wait, they are giving another option where you can have it air shipped. And so if you want to avoid that wait, you can you can contact Dutch Pinball and they will arrange for it to be to be flown to the US and then delivered to your door. But the condition is that's an additional $1500 on top of the purchase price. So you do have to pay extra well and 1450 actually is the, it was the exact amount I saw but I'm rounding it up it's about 1500 more dollars. So I guess Tony what do you think about I guess the news in terms of Dutch Pinball shipping? And probably the more interesting element that they're offering a shipping option for those that don't want to wait, but it's sort of this extravagant of an option, at least in terms of price. Um, I'm kind of like you. I don't really know why, but for some reason I was expecting a ship date in like July or August. I don't really know why I had that in my head. I don't know if it was from something I read or just kind of a feel, but that's just what I felt. So it, it surprised me to see them shipping already. And this might have been something that they've been talking about with people, and I just, like you, haven't really been following The Big Lebowski, because as much as I love The Big Lebowski, the movie, uh, a $10,000 machine is so far outside of the realm of something I would be picking up that it's not even worth my time, really, because I really don't think I'm going to see one at least until maybe next time I go to a big show somewhere somebody might have one. But I don't think I don't haven't heard from anybody locally who's getting one, so I'm not expecting to see one. Now on the shipping, I know overseas shipping is expensive, and I know air shipping is really expensive. And I but I don't know the prices, so I don't know. Maybe fifteen hundred dollars for a three hundred three hundred and fifty pound ship is right in line. It could very well be. Um, I just man, putting fifteen hundred dollars on top of the ten grand you already put out for a machine that you've been waiting for for who knows how long. Well, seems a little insane to me instead of, you know, just waiting another three or four weeks. But that's just one of those things. I mean, the real question, I think, is what is air shipping cost? What's normal for them? Yeah, and I've seen in terms of uh, forum discussions, there there have been people stressing, pointing out or claiming, you know, take your pick, that air shipping actually runs a lot less. The Highway Pinball, I think, was an example listed where they do air shipping and their air shipping costs are much less than what this is. And so, you know, the speculation was, is this another way to try and do a price grab, you know, cash grab? Is Dutch 
inflating the price, going to pay the air freight and then pocket the rest. And this is just another way to help fund the development costs that uh, that are on the machine because the machine didn't start at $10,000 for the people who first got in. It's gone up a couple thousand since the beginning, which isn't atypical. We've seen that with other companies as well. Uh, like you, I'm not aware of anyone in the area who's mentioned to me or provided an announcement that they are getting, I don't even know a home collector who's getting one. There, there very well could be, and they just haven't advertised that. But I don't think I'm going to be seeing it outside of a show either. The In terms of the, the offering the airship, I think that's fine. Uh, I think it's fine at the price point they've presented. The only thing that really concerned me is the phrasing, or at least the phrasing that's come about from the forum discussions was, I'm wondering if people are going to be scared into buying the air shipping option because you, you, I, you had just said, you know, the idea of waiting three to four weeks to get the shipment, to get the pen if you ordered it and let it go by sea. But with the statement about the container thing, that's where all the speculation is. It's like, well, is the container only getting filled with pinball machines? Is it going to have to be 40? Uh, you know, they're not going to stick anything else in the container because that's how Dutch is going to control their pricing. What happens if I'm number 41? How long is it going to be until the 80th U.S. pin is ready to go by sea? So is it going to be four weeks or am I going to wait months before they actually fill the container? And so that is the element of it that I think was probably at least initially handled poorly because and, and, you know, it may be to Dutch's advantage if they get to keep the excess amount to try and get people to ship by air. But that, you know, that's sort of a, it came across to me like a scare tactic method to say, oh, well, you know, if you do it by sea, it's going to, you know, I mean, if you're number if you're number 40, great. But if you're number 41 ugh, sort of thing. So I that's the, that's the part that bothered me. I can see that concern. I think that's a pretty valid concern, actually, uh, worrying about when it's going to come in. But then again, like you said, I mean, these are people who have been waiting for the machine for, you know, years at this point in some cases. So, I don't know. If they've got the money to do it, it's everybody gets to do whatever they want. It just seems a little strange to me. And it does seem really weird that Highway can ship for so much cheaper than this. But that also brings up the thought, is Highway ship doing that kind of shipping at a loss? Or is since Highway shipping from... England and are they are their prices a little different is there something else going on I don't know there's so many different things that I just haven't ever really looked at overseas shipping yeah no I don't and that's why I don't I don't want to jump on the and instantly and say well highway does it this way so you should be able to do it this way it's I mean different countries highways uh been shipping pens longer they might have better deals with the with the airship company that they work with you know, and then maybe that company doesn't operate in the Netherlands. Uh, you know, there's just there are a lot of variables, and I don't care enough about it to want to explore to explore that. Honestly, it's just uh, well, I mean, you know, I I don't want to. I'm not going to lump it all. Where I, I've seen people be like, "You've already spent ten thousand dollars. What's another fifteen hundred? I hate that line of thinking because it assumes that every single person who got in on ten thousand dollar pin just had the $10,000 to easily throw around. And this might actually be a really big, per you know, someone might have decided not to get a new car instead of, of doing something like this. And yeah, it's a toy and you, we can criticize it from that, from that regard that you're spending big money on toys. But the bottom line is not everyone who buys pinball machines is rich. And so 
where it becomes a difference of $1,500 or $500. It it does matter to some people. And so in in that regard, it's just I don't want to be flippant and think everyone who who bought the Big Lebowski is going to be able to consider the air shipping as a reasonable choice. Some of them are not. That's just that's just too much out of the budget at this point. So every time you say air shipping, I just have this mental image of a Zeppelin full of pinball machines floating over the ocean coming towards America. (laughs) it's kind of indiana jones when he's up there from last crusade and he's running around running around inside the zeppelin i get that image in my head but instead of nazis the zeppelin's full of pinball machines yeah but then they're they're checking them just they're getting over the before they've just crossed over the port you just hear no ticket and they push them out just push them out. No ticket. Out. Oh, that that or I, whenever I think of Zeppelins, I unfortunately always think of the Hindenburg and just imagined it burst. You know, the only way they could lift that many pinball machines was was with hydrogen. Helium wasn't going to cut it. And oh, the humanity! <laughs> there, the dude goes down in, fl- in flames, in water, uh, tragic. And you know there'd be no refunds because it's pinball. Oh, well, yeah, of course not. Like, wasn't our fault that the airship exploded. That's right. That stuff happens. The airshippers chose to go with hydrogen we can't be held, we can't be held responsible so all right so enough, enough about the big lebowski let's go ahead and move on to segment number two which is video games we actually have quite a bit of content this time to talk about let's go ahead and start with the actual games themselves i know there's sort of three that we we want to talk about and the first one i thought we should hit on which will be a bit awkward i admit for both of us because neither of us own a wii u but it's uh, yes yes i i try so hard not not, not to say it like that but i always yeah i just you know there was a time i could do most of steve odekirk's voices well i thought but there was a time when we watched that movie like at least twice a week for months so it was i i do own it i i haven't watched it in a while but i think about it all the time I see anything advertising the Wii U and that's why I say it the way I do is because this is what the chosen one would want. But uh, Star Fox zero actually is the topic rather than the console itself, but it is console exclusive to the Wii U. Uh, Star Fox zero is out now. I know someone who's actually been playing it, but the reviews are really what I wanted to focus on because Star Fox is in my mind, it's a flagship franchise for nintendo it's one of the i mean we don't say it in the same breath that we say zelda and mario but Star Fox was was a big icon i think because it really introduced in a competent way the idea of sort of a, a flight sim combat style to console it was it did it did it, it really did. but at the same time i think i think that worked really well with Star Fox and with it the Star Fox 2 and I just don't know if it's been that big since then. All the, all the other ones seem to be like they're searching for themselves. I, yeah, I think you're right. Or, and, and part of it is for, for whatever reason. And, and to me, it is, it's somewhat surprising only because of the control, a control pad, actually, unlike an RTS, for example, control pads lend themselves pretty well to flight, but it seems that, just sort of air combat broadly speaking doesn't have a really big footprint 
on the console side. We're seeing, we're seeing, so, we always see some of it. It's never gone away. I don't know if we're seeing more of it or not. Uh, there have been some more indie developers that are going this route now. It's gotten easier for small studios to be able to do this sort of stuff. And so I've been noticing a lot of non-major like EA backed air combat sort of or ace combat was the example I wanted to name, but you know, we're seeing some other things that are, that are showing up. So, so there is that, uh, Nintendo, I don't know what they've got on, on their radar outside of their, you know, their first party stuff, which is usually pretty, you know, well hailed things that are locked in on their console. The thing that I thought was interesting about star Fox zero is the reviews are terrible. Absolutely terrible. I read three separate ones and they were all really bad. One of them said that it, I think it was the Polygon non-review. They labeled it a non-review because the reviewer said that they only issue reviews except in rare instances once the gamer who's doing the review completes the game and they couldn't bring themselves to finish it. Wow, that's pretty bad. Yeah. And most most of the complaints center on that the control scheme is gimmicky. And that it's actually relying on the tilt-based features of the gamepad that's overly complex to play and that it's trying to exploit so many of the features of the Wii U that it feels like a launch title trying to use everything that the Wii U had to offer. Even uses the there's certain points where the only audio comes from the gamepad, which has a speaker in it. So you actually have to listen to the gamepad. You have to play on the gamepad. You can't just turn up your TV. Uh, I just, you know, I mean, we're we're not going to be playing this because we don't we don't own this console. I'm not planning on getting a Wii U, but I, I just thought I should note. Uh, unfortunately, for those people who are big fans of the franchise or perhaps remember fondly the Star Fox of their youth, that uh, this game is not sounding really good. And I I don't I don't know if it's easy to rent games anymore, but but I just you know I guess caution danger will Robinson danger you need, you want to be careful here uh, because surprisingly especially given this is really late in the life cycle yeah uh, it's I mean, pretty those... much end life cycle of the Wii U from the sounds of things I mean yeah. we've been talking about the NX for months now I mean there's a lot of thoughts that the next Nintendo console might be coming out at the end of the year or just after yeah there's a lot of speculation that that's the case. And so that this would be a late life console game with these style of complaints in the reviews amazes me, especially since it should have been a franchise that Nintendo cared about. But I mean, I guess it is what it is. But I don't know if you did. Tony, did you have any additional thoughts on on the sort of this information coming out of Star Fox Zero? Well, yeah, it seems like the Nintendo really has just kind of become the gimmick company. I mean, starting with especially starting with the Wii and now the Wii U, their everything about their consoles seems to be designed around the gimmick and it seems like the best games are the ones that get around the gimmick and are still good games. Uh, like um, Splatoon. Splatoon was is probably the biggest non-Legend of Zelda game, non-Mario game to hit the Wii U period. And from everything I've heard and everyone I've talked to who's played it, they all love it. As long as they shut off the parts of the game that required the gamepad gimmick. And when they're not using the gamepad gimmick, the rest of the game is a really good game and they really enjoy it. So, I mean, that seems to be the biggest thing. And I just wonder what it is or what Nintendo's going for that's turned them into this kind of gimmick company. They're not pushing for the big, for the big 
out of the park graphics and the insanity like 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 PlayStation and Xbox is they're going their own way which Nintendo has always done and Nintendo's always had a certain feel and Nintendo's games feel a certain way and they've got a certain aesthetic but uh, the addition of all the gimmicks I don't think is really helping them at all no I think they you know the Wii itself was a very successful console it got a lot of purchases but it, I don't think it it lasted in the sense that people didn't continue to game on it. Whereas, you know, if you were to go back last last gen to PS3 or Xbox 360, people still, a lot of people still play those. And there was often the joking from the, I, I'm somewhat loath to say hardcore gamer, but that's what I'll, I'll have to use. The hardcore gamer talking about how they owned a Wii, they all owned a Wii, but it was just sitting there collecting dust. They never played it. And except when a, a really cool first party franchise title would come out from Nintendo. So, yeah, we'll, we'll have to I'm sure we'll cover it when the news finally breaks about the Nintendo's next console. We can talk about it then. But I, I'm really curious to see what they end up moving towards. Yeah, I am, too. I know there's been a, some speculation from like patents and and some other leaks here and there that it looks like they're going to do another view screen in uh, controller gimmick thing, but nothing's set in stone and nobody seems to really know anything. So we're just going to have to see. All right. Well, let's move on to something that's a little more broadly accessible across a whole slew of platforms, and that is Pinball FX2. And since it's virtual pinball, we are putting it in the video game section. Even though we have a pinball section, I've often wondered how I would handle it when those when we reach those crossroads, because obviously it sort of satisfies the interest of both our categories. But here is where this sort of stuff will live. And pinball people who like to listen to the whole show can enjoy getting a double dose. I think the only time that we might shift the this type of pinball into the uh actual pinball ca- category is maybe if we're just talking strictly about like virtual cabs that's uh, true i've wondered that about would, that that would make more that would make sense but for just something like this i mean which i mean i like pinball fx i own like four or five tables on uh pinball fx on my uh, tablet and my phone that's where i play the vast majority of my pinball fx is tablet I uh, I own most of my tables on the Xbox infrastructure. I'd guess I probably have the most on the Xbox One. I have quite a few on the 360. I also have a few on PC as well. I think less than ten on PC. So I've I've got it on a, on a few places. But the uh, the news related to Pinball FX2 has been around for quite quite a few years at this point. But is uh, they've released some new DLC or they they are releasing some new DLC. Uh, Alien the uh, the the xenomorphs of our of our childhood and and beyond because they continue to try and do new movies uh, even if, if they're just quasi related like prometheus but uh so there's going to be some alien dlc it's set to uh be unleashed uh just in a couple days from now it's supposed to hit on april 26th which is fox's promotional alien day uh that they sort of started as of this year and uh, it consists of three tables and so I guess in terms of I've seen footage on two of them. I hadn't seen any footage yet on the alien versus predator table. So I don't know if it's based on that horrible movie. Um, not as bad as alien versus predator two movie, mind you, but it's still pretty bad for an alien you know, movie. I remember back when we were in high school, there was a series of aliens versus predator books that came out that were, they were like that real cheap, uh, kind of like the doom books that came out back then. They're they're really really aimed at teenagers and and, and 
this and that. They're just, you know, all all uh, the big gun, heavy gun, marine, sci-fi type stuff. But I remembered reading them, and those were actually halfway interesting. And I think any one of those stories was ten times better than either of those movies. Those movies were so bad. The uh, yeah, there I, I I do not consider the Alien vs Predator movies to be a part of the Alien franchise. I don't I don't uh, con- I mean they weren't in the quadrology. I think there was a good reason for that. I think Alien vs Predator is watchable. I think it's a lot more enjoyable than the second one was, which was. Uh, a total mess in my mind, but even the worst of the regular alien movies, alien three, I think is a far superior film to alien versus predator. Wow. So, uh, uh, well, I'm right. saying a lot. It, I actually, there are some really strong elements of alien three. I think alien three gets knocked a lot. It had a lot of studio interference, but since we're not a movie podcast, I won't delve into it too, <laughs> too much, but, um, but it, it, it has some really, really good moments in it. Uh, but, it, but overall, it, I do think it is the weakest of the four real movies. But so there's going to be a table based on something involving aliens and predators. I don't know anything else about it yet. There, the other table, uh, our second table is uh, it's based on the video game Alien Isolation. Tony, I don't know if you were familiar with Alien Isolation or not. I've played part of it. It's a stealth game that came out in 2014. Yeah, I've seen. I watched somebody who I can't remember do a review on it on YouTube. But I've never played it. I've just seen that review and I've seen some video clips of it. I think uh, just in quick summary of Alien Isolation, I don't know if I would recommend it necessarily uh, uh, in terms of it did succeed in scaring me. I actually did jump in my chair several times. If I turn the lights out and have to try and avoid the alien, it is a it's a total stealth gamer. That's how it's supposed to be played, at least. But it's also really repetitive. And I've been playing it off and on, mostly off. Uh and I've been playing it on hard, and so it's, it doesn't take a lot for the alien to find you, and I'm pretty helpless against them. So, uh, but anyway, so it's based off the game. The game was very successful uh, in terms of sales, so I'm not surprised that they ran with that one. And then the the third table, which was the first one I saw footage for, was they have got one that is based on the movie Aliens. So we're talking the table. I mean, the from the footage of it, I thought that one in particular looked great because it really evoked the movie really well. You've got Sigourney Weaver standing off on, on one of the sides uh, up in the play field using the flamethrower. You've got the alien queen over in the back. And there even is at least certain points where down near the flippers, those sentry guns from the cool hallway scene that's at least in the director's cut, the cool hallway scene where it's you know, B guns down to 50% A's right behind. And they're shooting all the aliens trying to come down the hallway. I love that scene. And it's, it's got those guns, got those guns, at least just doing visual stuff, which is what, what Zen likes to do with the, with pinball effects. You've got things that happen that can't really happen in physical pinball. Yeah. Like, like in one of the, uh, I've got the star Wars Starfighter pin and it's got the, uh, the turbo laser batteries that shoot as X-wings or TIE fighters fly over the table every as they're the pop bumpers. So every time the ball hits it, it shoots. It, it's just a really cool little thing you can do in video games that you couldn't do on a physical table. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, I've so I've seen the footage on those latter two, uh, and I guess especially given there's the one based on aliens. Uh, we should probably throw throw in relating back to uh, back to our normal pinball segment that there is a physical alien pinball that's being made by Highway, which made full throttle. I know we've talked about it before, but I guess um, I mean, do you have any thoughts? Uh, the only thing we could really compare is the art, but yeah, but I I think I think it's interesting that 
there are four pinball games based around aliens coming out. And I mean, three virtual and one real, but aliens is apparently suddenly getting a big resurgence. And I know Prometheus didn't do that great. And I know they're still talking about the sequel to Prometheus. So I'm just kind of curious what's really pushing this giant resurgence of alien stuff lately. I mean, it just seems a little, uh, maybe I'm, maybe I've missed something. Maybe there's something coming out that I don't know about, but it just seems like there's been just a sudden resurgence. I don't, I, part of it may just be Fox. I mean, in terms of cho- choosing to do a, an April 26th promotional day, uh, modeled, I think pretty clearly on like back to the future day was. Yeah. But wh- why, why April 26th? Uh, because uh, LV four twenty six was the planet. Oh, I mean that oh, that's that's that, it. That makes sense. That's the. It's that's not very the, good, but that makes sense. No, it's not. I, mean, I think that's the closest that, tie-in you could come. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I suppose that, that's if they no made the fourth be with you, that's no, no, no the future no. day. But yeah, okay. That's, Everything is a clone of the May the fourth be with you, but unfortunately, most of these movies are not going to resonate that well <laughs> with with something that convenient of a you know style sort of you know alliterations or plays on 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 common phrases so. i'll sit down at, yeah i'll sit down any day and watch aliens uh, i was so happy we got to get last year go see aliens again in a big screen theater that was nice i love that movie but yeah it was just kind of weird that hey look there's a bunch of alien stuff all of a sudden oh yeah well i think for you know as a as an aside part of the thing with uh, alien day is on that day alamo draft house is showing aliens and i think people are getting t-shirts and stuff when you go I thought about mentioning oh, cool. it, but but given that it, it's going to fall on a on a Tuesday, I didn't know we'd yeah. be able to swing it. Yeah, so it's just like because Alamo Draft House is because that's where we went to see aliens. Yeah. So. No, no, we oh. went to Prairie Fire to see aliens. Oh, that's right. What did we see in Alamo Draft House? Was where we went to see the uh, Ava movies. That's right. Ava. They had that that's really, right. really, really good brown sugar lemonade. Now, I yeah, I, I didn't have that. I had a sandwich. It was okay, but I could have made better. <laughs> uh, so, so, okay. So, um, yeah, uh, just in terms of, yeah, it's really interesting. That there's all that stuff coming out personally. Uh, I thought the aliens DLs Zen table looks really good. I haven't seen a fully populated highway alien pinball yet. So it's, I don't think it's fair to, to judge it yet. It's just the, the thing is, you know, when there was the discussion and when we touched on it in our, a few episodes ago was the issue about there's no cast, at least as on the play field art, there's no cast on highways version. And, Pinball FX has Sigourney. It has it yeah. has cast, and so I, I'm hoping that in the video, in the callouts and stuff, that they're able to do stuff from the movies because Highway is supposed to be modeled off the first two movies, and I want it to feel like the movies. Aliens Pinball Table from Zen looks and feels to me like the movie. Uh, it's yeah. too bad that that's the only one that was based off the movies. I wish maybe instead of Alien Isolation, I would have rather than have done one based off of alien the movie but you know they do yeah, what they they do what they need to do ones but hey, yeah the, i understand that like i said i watched the same videos you did they looked pretty cool when the apc pulled up and the ball dropped out of the apc i thought that was kind of a cool thing you're just so. grinding metal <laughs> so yeah no it's a i'll look for i'll probably pick them up at some point i will i will too i usually for uh pinball fx i usually wait for a, a pack sale so you know i probably i won't be getting it in two days i'll be waiting but but I most of my tables I get on sales. So uh, let's go ahead and go to our, our third and final game that we want to talk about with the video game section. That's Battlefleet Gothic Armada, which I am at all not familiar with. 
Well, Battlefleet Gothic Armada is a RTS uh, adaptation of an old Games Workshop tabletop game. Uh, it's a naval combat-focused game set in the Gothic sector of Warhammer 40K. And while I'm not a big fan of Warhammer 40K, the tabletop game, and I, mainly because I'm not a fan of Games Workshop's way they've handled it, and I'm not a big fan of the army sizes and stuff. I love the lore of Warhammer 40K. I mean, I've played all of the video Warhammer 40K video games that have come out, and I've enjoyed them all. And when this one came out that is basically just naval combat, I was all over it. I uh, pre-ordered. And they're do now, speaking of the pre-orders, they're doing an interesting thing. Uh, they're not calling it a pre-order bonus. It is an early adopter bonus. Anybody who purchases the game within two months of the game's release uh, will get all the early adopter rewards, which are include two extra fleets uh, that will be released at a later time. But they've already announced one of them. It's the Space Marines fleet, and the other one is unannounced at this time. And I kind of like that. So you don't have to pre-order to get special things, but you can, or but you can pick it up later. Uh, it's... Like like a lot of tabletop games, a lot of video games really that deal with this kind of space combat. It's uh, even though space is three D, everything's done in a two D situation. But it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's roaring around, slaughtering Xenos for the Emperor, burning the heretics, killing chaos, killing orcs. Uh, almost entirely broadside combat or dead ahead combat. Uh, and I've been having a surprisingly large amount of fun with it. It's a little harder than I expected. I mean, it's not like, oh, this game's impossible hard. But it, it, it's definitely a little harder than I expected. But uh, I know we talked an episode or two ago about how a lot of games don't have... They've got very linear progression, and when you screw up a mission, you just start over. Not in this game. When you screw up a mission, they basically go, oh, well, that's really bad, and we could be screwed. And then you keep playing, going through there, living with whatever problem you had. Uh, I mean, I've got... I've lost several missions. I'm not really in a good place. I, I think I'm going to end up losing this um, first uh, playthrough I've had of it. But um, <clears throat> it also does this really fun thing where the first time you see each of the races, it has an introduction. So you start up the game and there's an introduction to the Imperial fleet. And then the first time, and then you fight Chaos, and there's an introduction to Chaos. And then the first time you see the Orcs, there's an introduction video to to the Orcs. And all the races are very, well, versioned like you would expect from the lore of themselves. And it's pretty enjoyable. I, I, I highly recommend watching the Orc video, at least just because it's fun. Um... And they all play differently. They all play very differently. But I, I've been having a lot of fun with it. It is a surprisingly well put together game. Considering I hadn't even known it was being put together until like three weeks ago. Hmm. Well, I have I have played an RTS in the Warhammer 40k universe before. I I do have a Warhammer 40k's Dawn of War two, but that was a ground combat focus. And while, and I didn't do much multiplayer. And the single player campaign was only from the Space Marine perspective. I, right, that's all I, I really would, remember. Yeah. yeah, and and here I think the single player is all from the Imperial perspective. And I haven't gone and done any multiplayer yet, but um, 
there's also, you know, the normal, you can do skirmishes and this and that, where you get to choose the other races. And I've talked to some people who've played them and, you know, they really like playing the orcs or the Eldar or the chaos. I, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to playing as orcs, uh, but I'm an Imperial man at heart. Uh, so we've been, it's been a lot of fun. I'm definitely looking forward to putting some more hours into it, even though I definitely getting the crud beat out of me this round. <laughs> Well, sometimes they're rough. Those RTSs can be really steep sometimes to get through. Interesting that they're doing that. what I think of the wing commander tree approach where if you lose, oh, well, you got to keep going and dealing with that. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I like that a lot, too. I think it definitely gives you a better feel because, you know, there's chances to bring it back. And at least I'm hoping there's chances to bring it back. But sometimes you lose enough and you're just going to keep fighting your way to the end. Now, this is interesting. Like we've talked about um the Games Workshop is definitely this isn't this is far 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 from the only one of their titles that they've converted into a, a video game project in the last like four or five years and I know there's a couple more still in production and some of them have been really good and, uh, some of them have been okay um, I know the uh, uh, the Ultramarine game the Space Marine game was on Xbox I had that on Xbox 360 and it was fun, but nothing great. And they've had a bunch of other ones lately said in both the Warhammer 40 K and the Warhammer fantasy worlds. And I think it's interesting to see just how well considering other issues that games workshop has had in the past, they are converting to the modern digital media. They are doing a good job of stepping out of the tabletop realm into the video game realm. I think. Well, that's uh, I and I, I kind of like the idea of those of, of IPs like that expanding across multiple sort of gaming divisions, gaming concepts, because I think it helps sort of tie everything in together and, and win over new fans, which is which is useful. Uh, so in a way, it's sort of basically there. It's like they're upgrading. And speaking of upgrading, let's go ahead and transition. I'm so proud of my transition. I just built in there. That was a wonderful transition. Thank you. Uh, well, I am a highly paid professional. <laughs> and so uh, our final video game topic is actually about the news that there is going to be an upgraded PlayStation 4 operating as codename Neo. Is it the one? I guess we will we'll find out, though they really probably shouldn't have called it the Neo because while I love the Matrix humor, I can get off calling something the one given that there is the Xbox one. It is just confusing to say that. So I'm sure that codename will change. But uh, just some highlights real quick. The PlayStation 4 Neo will be upgrading the system on several fronts. The CPU is going to be faster. It's going to go from 1.6 gigahertz to 2.1. There's going to be an improved uh, GPU. It's going to go from 18 CUs to 36, and it's going to go from 800 megahertz to 911 megahertz. And it's still staying with eight gigs of, of RAM, but they're going to. It's going to be faster. It's going to be from 176 to 218 gigabytes a second. So. Essentially, it is the PlayStation 4, but it's going to have slightly improved specs in the hardware. The uh, I read the developer outline or a summary of the developer outline that Sony has released, and it does stress that they do not want to split the user base. So there are all sorts of caveats for game developers in terms of what they are allowed to do. And in a nutshell, it's that all the games that they continue to develop have to be fully playable on the PlayStation 4, I guess, vanilla version. But you can do 
you can do upgrades if you want like the ability to output to 4k which i my sense is that's the main purpose to this but also if you want things to it's okay for things to load faster and stuff it's just everything that every game element has to still work well that makes sense when you look at it from an outsider's perspective i mean that's the only way because if they split the base completely they are just, it's going to destroy them. It'll be a complete failure. Trying to keep everybody locked in is their only way to keep uh, the player bases united and keeping them able to, oh, I've got a Neo and I've got a Vanilla, so we can't ever play our games together. Wouldn't It would just hurt them in the long run. I mean, it's got to be their primary goal. Right, right. And I think they're, it sounds like they're approaching it uh, pretty, from an intelligent manner. I mean, Sony, in terms of the consoles, Sony is in the best position, I think, to do this because they've got the largest install base on the current gen. So they've, I mean, in a way you could say, well, they've got everything to lose if they screw it up. But, you know, as long as they, I, I think if worst comes to worst, they don't get the sales on the Neo and they just drop it. But but there, there are risks. So I, in terms of even with these these instructions they've given developers, uh, it, it, you know, it raises for me, it raises some questions like our early adopters, people who got the PlayStation 4 early. Are they going to be mad that they paid so much and that's already getting displaced? Because in console life cycles, this is fast. And my the rumor is, is that the Neo is going to be at 400 bucks. So. You know, what What about the, the vanilla, the old PS4 versus the Neo? Is the old one going down in price? And if, I mean, are they just going to clear out the old stock or are they keeping both in production? I'm not clear on that. My guess is what's going to end up happening here is about halfway through the life cycles of consoles, they typically come out with the smaller version that they drop at a lower price, you know, like the, the, the Slim or the uh, whatever whatever they called the smaller PS3 and the this and that. I don't remember the names. And I think what's going to end up happening is <clears throat> that they're going to come out with that for the PS for the PS4 vanilla. It'll be a smaller version. It'll be a different footprint type thing. And then the Neo will, and it'll be at a lower price threshold. And the Neo is going to drop at probably the $400 price threshold and say, here, we're still, you can play that on the base, the base, the, the, the vanilla is the perfect machine. You can play all the same games and we can play it. It's just, it's going to look just a little bit better and it's going to cost you a little bit more to get into it. I think that's kind of what they're aiming for, but it's the only thing I can make sense of. Well, I'm, I'm also not, I, the other thing on it is I don't know how the developers are going to feel about coding a console game to take advantage of both hardware specs. Cause that's what the instructions are. And I don't know how many are going to bother. And, you know, if it's just going to be Sony first party stuff, I, you know, again, that that's more of a business thing in terms of it's going to sell for them or not. The, just the main thing, I think the big question and why everyone's sort of concerned is while this sort of stuff, like if you're a PC gamer, upgrading the PC kind of comes with it, but everyone knows that. And people will upgrade their phones all the time. It comes with the territory. Upgrading consoles is a new concept, and part of the reason why consoles have always sort of done so well is you don't have to think. You buy the console, and then the games will work with the console. You don't worry about upgrading the specs. So that's that's the risk, obviously, is whether or not the market will be willing to embrace that. It sort of begs some questions like, what happens if, if uh, the Neo 2 comes out in two more years? Are people going to be cool with that, with an upgrade from the upgrade? I, you know, I it's that, and is that their plan? I don't know. It's it's very different from console marketing's historic roots, 
But there have been rumors that Microsoft is looking at doing something akin to this as well. So it's apparently the direction that companies are are wanting to consider. And I think Sony's probably the safest one to try and do it first. So I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I wonder how much of this is because of phones, like you said. I mean, everybody has their iPhone whatever number iPhone we're at right now. And then a year after it drops, they, they come out with the S version. And then a year after that drops, they come out with the next iteration of iPhone. And I could see that maybe that what they're doing is moving along those lines that, okay, the PlayStation 4 is out two and a half to three and a half years after it drops. Here comes the PlayStation 4 Neo. And then two and a half to three and a half years after that drop comes the PlayStation 5, which will let them kick out the uh, 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 player base lock-in for trying to keep the Neo and the base together. And then maybe a couple or three years after that, you get the the PlayStation 5 2 Electric Boogaloo. And then a couple years after that, you get PlayStation 6. So, I mean, it's just a... I wonder if that's the type of thing they're looking at as a long-range plan. So they can keep the price points at $400 or whatever the price, the initial release price points are uh, by giving them a lower example that they can drop the price while still having a higher example so they can try and keep the higher price ones on the market without people going nuts by saying, you know, well, this game's this console's been out for four years. Why should I still be paying $400 for a console that's been out for four years? Going into Tabletop, we see uh, an announcement just uh, last week. Uh, that was a surprise for a lot of people, myself included. Uh, Privateer Press, the makers of War Machine and Hordes, which we talked about in our last uh, system, when we, our last podcast, when we were talking about game, uh, tabletop mini games, has announced that they are releasing the Mark III version of the game. Um, I started playing right as Mark II dropped, so that was 2010, is when I started playing War Machine. Wow, so, that's quite a while then. Yeah. So they don't, they don't, they, I mean, I mean, in terms of it's, they, they don't like pump out an update a year or anything. No, 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 no. They, it's, it's been six years coming since the last update dropped. And, and that varies from tabletop to manufacturer to tabletop manufacturer. Some of them pump out an update every year or every two years. But, uh, Privateer Press, it's one of the things I really like about them besides just the fact that my army is steampunk czarist Russia. Uh, that I like about them is how they keep things. And while they do errata and stuff, they don't punch out something, some giant new edition that you have to get or else you can't play every year. But um, they did announce that the Mark III will be dropping on June 29th. And it's going to be debuted at the Lock and Load Game Fest in Washington on June 10th. Now, Lock and Load is Privateer Press's um, private convention where they do major tournaments for all of their games and they do show off all of their games. I mean, it is a, it is basically like having a giant EA fest or Stern having a giant or Stern having a convention. That's just Stern. It's kind of like that, but is it uh, open to the public or it is, is it open to the public? Okay. Yeah. It, it's open to the public. They carry, they have big, uh, public tournaments. People can join in, uh, it's a lot like any other convention. It's just instead of being a giant everything games convention, it is literally just a privateer press convention. I've never attended. I've got friends who have. Um, <clears throat> I've never been able to get away to get to Washington for that kind of time. And I'm frankly not a good enough war machine player 
to uh, do anything other than get slaughtered in tournaments anyway. But with six years of refinements going into the game and from reading the uh, information that they've put out, it looks like they're making some pretty hefty changes that's going to keep the game fun. And it's going to balance some overall differences in the game because the uh, game is... uh, uh, there's two games. It's War Machine and Hordes. They're set in the same world. Uh, they're just slightly different. War Machine deals with more nationalist type things. Like I said, uh, I, I play Cawdor, who's basically steampunk czarist Russia uh, with a slathering of World War II Soviet aesthetic for the equipment. And there's... Uh, uh, Mininoth, which is basically uh, the Vatican with lots of flamethrowers, and uh, Signar, which is, you know, some terribly horrible swans that are very blue and like democracy and all that stuff. Um, but it's all there, but the Horde stuff is more tribal. It's more, you know, trolls and feral peoples and dragon kin type stuff. But the games played, you can play them together and you can play against each other. But because they each play a little differently, because like War Machine is a lot of advanced machinery. And then in Hordes, uh, your version of the Warcasters, uh, instead of having robots that they're commanding, they have giant creatures, like giant beasts that they're commanding. So they play against each other a little different. And there's always been a slight imbalance. very early in the games, um, hordes, the horde ga- uh, units are much stronger in the early game. And come end game, the war machine units tend to have an advance. So, uh, I mean, that was kind of balanced, but if a horde, if the horde player could overrun the war machine player in the first, you know, few three or four turns, they could take the game pretty easily. And if the war machine player can hold out, then the game gets long in the tooth and it gets a lot harder and they get an advantage. This is going to balance out those, uh, how those two play against each other with some rules changes. And I kind of like that. And the nice thing that is very different from a lot of other tabletop games is the way uh, War Mahords does their equipment and their troops is every group of troops, every war jack, every war beast has a card that you put on the t- de- that you put on the table in front of you that has all of the, your important stats, your spells, and other information about the cards so you can track damage and this and that. And when they come out with a new edition, you they release a card pack that has new cards for every single unit in a faction. So you just have to buy that faction pack and you're ready to play. And you need that faction pack and the, um, the new rule book that has the changes in the rules. So for the, those two little purchases, you're completely ready to play. Where some other games change things to the point where your whole army might have, you might have to get all new units. Your whole army might have to be replaced. Or in some cases, like I know a Games Workshop was real bad at times about, they'd kick out a new edition and it might be a year and a half before your army was playable because there were no rules for your army in the new edition. And that's not how this is going out. Yeah, I noticed that they had indicated in their announcement that this for the Mark Three that they uh, had three years of active development. So that that obviously indicates that they've had a significant, serious effort to get it right and not just 
you know, it's not just a cash in. It's not just, well, you know, we'll, we'll patch it in. We'll put in, you know, we go back to pinball. We'll, we'll roll out the code after we roll out the machines sort of, sort of scenario. And, and it makes sense for them uh, here because uh, as near as I can tell, the, I was only familiar with War Machine, but from everything that I've read, War Machine and Hordes are the flagship products for Privateer Press. They are. They are Privateer Presses. Most of Privateer Presses' other games are side games and stuff based in that universe. They've got an RPG out there um, uh, that is, you know, your standard pen and paper roll the dice RPG that's set in the War Machine and Hordes world. And they've got some other, they've got some board games and they've got. Uh, deck building game uh, that's set in the War Machine and Hordes universe. And they've got some other games that aren't set in that universe, but it is the core. That universe is the core of their uh, gameplay. And they do have a video game that was kickstarted and created uh, two years ago or so. And um, they haven't gone the Games Workshop route of turning into a huge franchise-like thing. That game is basically just the tabletop game directly translated over into a video game format with better graphics and, and like a campaign tacked on. It's not, it's not horrible. It's, it's nothing great, but it's, it's not a terrible conversion. I've seen a lot worse stuff done, but one of their big things that they have done, uh, which is again, something games workshop did with the Warhammer stuff is they've started putting out a novel line with a lot of novels telling other lore and back telling the stories in the universe. All right. Well, it sounds like that uh, feeds in really well into the that cycle of, of developing your, the product through other other means besides the main game. And I think it works really well for RPG stuff anyway, because there's always been this tendency to want to gather more and more background, more and more lore. Be RPGs of all varieties, tabletop, video games, all of that. It's often a, a core centerpiece that a lot of fans of the genre really embrace. And I like this idea of this uh, this big rollout, this you know convention, private convention event that they're doing. So let's see, it's June 29th that this is all being officially unveiled. Yeah, well, it'll be unveiled on the everything will be unveiled uh, at Lock and Load on the 10th. But it, you should be able to pick it up in your uh, FLGS, your friendly local game shop, shop uh, starting on the 29th is when the actual international release is going to hit. All right. So let's move on to the next game, a card game. There's a Dresden Files cooperative card game that showed up on Kickstarter. And I have no familiar, uh, familiarity with the Dresden Files other than I've heard the phrase Dresden Files. So, Tony, what are the Dresden Files and why should we care about this card game? Well, the Dresden Files are a series of books by Jim Butcher. And they are very much uh, a core part of... What I would consider in novels lately, there's been a big urban fantasy push, and uh, the Dresden Files are that. Uh, they follow Harry Dresden, a uh, wizard who is actively working as a private investigator in Chicago, and he's in the phone book as a wizard. Uh, he's not hiding at all. You're and a wizard, Harry. That's exactly. He's a wizard, Harry. Now, the interesting thing is how the books... Uh, the books pretty much take uh, all your fantasy, your standard fantasy tropes, pretty much whole cloth and lift them and drop them into a modern day setting. Like elves exist, they live in another, basically a dimension shift, and all the things you would expect dragons are real, vampires are real, werewolves are real, they're all real, they're just in hiding. Uh, 
because there's so many humans and most humans just don't, when they see something magical, they just like ignore it or they put it, oh, I got hit in the head. That couldn't have actually happened type stuff. So they kind of live in a blind spot. And that's what the books are. And there's a lot of the books. I think there's 15 or 16 of them out so far. And I enjoy the series quite a lot. I've read the entire series uh, all the way through at least three times now. And there's another, I think he, there's going to be like 23 books is what is planned. Uh, so they're still in the midst of releasing. Now, this is a co-op card game. And uh, I like co-op games. And the way this game is uh, set is it is based around the books. So you um, play each of your primary goals is based around a book. So like the very first book is called Stormfront. So you can play the Stormfront scenario, which has somebody playing as Harry Dresden and the other people who are playing the co-op playing as Harry's allies. And the thing is, is the way it's set up is the game is designed so you can play as Harry's allies, even the allies that weren't there and didn't actually take part in the book. So everything will be a little different and change how you play it. Now, I haven't seen an actual play of the game. I've watched the rules video and I've watched the Kickstarter videos and there was a video that uh, Board Game Geeks put out uh, just today, actually, I think. I saw it on the Twitter feed that um talking about the game but it is a interesting co-op type thing where you work together but you're not a hundred percent working together so i i'll be kind of interested to see how it does it it passed i if i remember right it blew through its uh uh funding goal almost instantly which isn't a surprising because of the Dresden Files name tacked onto it. It's a very popular series. Yeah, it's something that, I mean, I, I do like the co-op card game. So it's something I would be willing to try, even though I don't have any familiarity or, or high interest in the theme in and of itself. Uh, in terms of their their Kickstarter, didn't they do something kind of unique in terms of the, I guess, the backer? They used backer kit, right? Well, yeah, that's not unique. Lots of people use backer kit, but what's kind of weird about it, and I don't know, maybe this is a thing that a lot of companies have been doing lately, but none, none I haven't seen it, is uh, when you back the project, uh, the shipping isn't included. Normally, the shipping is included when you choose your backing tier. Uh, at least everything I've ever backed, the shipping was included when you uh, did your backing tier unless you you know made changes afterwards. And in this case, it's not. So the the pledge to get the game is thirty nine dollars, and um, but that doesn't include the shipping. So to actually get the game shipped after the Kickstarter is over, you have to pay an additional ten dollars in the backer kit, and a backer kit is just a it's a back end for handling post Kickstarter successes so they can keep in contact and you can, they can add stuff and you can buy it. Like if you got in, but you didn't, you decided afterwards that you wanted to buy an extra set of dice, you can buy an extra set of dice in backer kit and this and that. But I don't know. It, it, they've got a section. It, it's different enough that they have a section inside their main explanation of the game, completely explaining the shipping process. And they they explain it pretty well and I can kind of see uh, see how it goes because they want to 
have everybody backing just putting money in that has no purpose other than to fund the game. They don't want to be spending... Uh, they don't want to have to pull some of the funding for the game money out to pay for shipping. So they're making you pay the shipping on the back end. Which is... I don't know. I'm, I'm not... I'm not as keen on it. I, I think I think it's kind of like they're trying to hide it, but they're not. They're not trying to hide it. I mean, it's flat out right there when you read it, and when you go to back it, it's in big, bold letter type things saying that it's that it's not uh, saying it so you ha- know about it, so it's not actually being hidden. It just feels hinky to me. I don't know why, if they know the shipping is going to be $10 in the U.S., why they didn't just make that backer level $49. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to say. I, I, they, there's no legitimate accounting reason why that should have been difficult. Now, if there, if no one really involved with it feels very comfortable with accounting, perhaps they're not familiar with setting up designated funds and thinking that it for, but it, it doesn't really make sense to me. It would have been real easy to project a shipping, uh, cost attack on, on top of what the total Kickstarter amount they needed was by just assuming how many people at that particular level would be necessary. And, you know, you would just track those funds separate as they'd come in. You'd always just shave that $10 and put it in that designated fund. But so I don't know why they did it that way as open as they are. Yeah. It does seem a little odd that they, unless they think people don't read the fine print, uh, and, and, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to ascribe nefarious uh, purposes behind them. I'm not actually familiar with this company, Evil Hat Productions. I don't know if I've played any of their RPGs. I haven't played anything by them before. I know the uh, uh, the main game designer, uh, whose name is slipping by my head right now. Um, I have uh, I've heard of him before. He's not out of nowhere for me. Uh, but I've never played any of the games he's designed. I've never done any played anything by Evil Hat. But I know it looks, I know I've got a, several friends who have uh, followed that Kickstarter already. And I I haven't put money at it. I've uh, got it on a, a watch list. I'm considering it, but I just, I don't know. <clears throat> I like, I, I like, I like, I like the Dresden Files. I like co-op games. I just, I haven't pulled the trigger yet. Well, I, yeah, I, and I and I understand. I understand why. And since they met their goal, it's gonna it's gonna happen. So if you do ever get interested, you could always buy it after the fact. Right. Yeah. Or I mean, they've got twenty some odd days left, so I still have plenty of time to back it. I've got it on a remind me. So now you identified another uh, interesting card game under Kickstarter called Noisy Person Cards. Yes. Now this, I want to big give a big shout out. I learned about this card game. From another podcast, Fear the Boot, uh, had one of the designers of this card game on it. And as soon as he described the game, I fell in love with this game. It is basically, it it is designed to help people work on doing voices for RPGs. So people who do, you know, play D&D or or, uh, Dark Heresy or whatever. I cast Magic Missile. Exactly. So they can work on their uh, voices while they're doing it. Now, I looked at, I, I watched their video of the Kickstarter, and it has not, uh, last time I checked, uh, been funded yet, but it's getting there pretty quickly. Uh, I really like the looks of this game. It basically plays like Cards Against Humanity, where, except for in this case, the judge sets down a card that's, you know, like, uh, a, a kobold or a paladin or a succubus or or a dragon or something 
and everybody else has to choose from the cards in their hand that are lines of dialogue, uh, sometimes very cheesy lines of dialogue, <laughs> which uh, uh, to which one they like, and then when they read it in the voice of whatever is down, like the kobold or the dragon or the succubus or the paladin or whatever. But to make things harder, people can discard cards uh, from their hand because the cards on the opposite side of where the the line is have a emotion. So you can, they can somebody can discard it and change, so they have to do it. So it's a sad kobold that's having to read a line. Or it's a... A, a angry dragon or a, or a a drunk paladin or whatever uh, and it just it seems like a lot of fun especially if you like doing weird voices and being kind of crazy and insane well this sounds awesome and I want to play it right now and let me well, tell you why let me tell you why all right I like cards against humanity okay and that's a great game. And, I, and I'm glad that this isn't doing this, you know, the same thing in terms of just the sheer shock value of Cards Against Humanity, because, you know, you, you don't mess with the master. And that's what that is now. But when it comes to voicing, I talk in stupid voices all the time. That is how I, I mean, uh, it is. I don't want to say that I'm the emperor, but <laughs> uh, but, you know, my kung fu is strong. And so this is right up my alley. I want to have a real reason besides me just being a dork to talk in stupid voices and it would be an incredible party game because it, it just, it, it, it combines everything I mean, you, with, with drinking, without drinking, it doesn't matter. It's that sort of stupid in that regard. It's the same, you know, it's as you compared it to cards against humanity. I think that's an excellent example because this is, it's doing that, you know, that it's that twist on something and you're just trying to see how, instead of how twisted your mind works is how twisted your voice is. And I just think that it would be awesome and we must have it. Yeah, I'm going to, this one, I'm going to back, uh, I'm waiting for payday, but this one's definitely getting a back screen for me. Now, the thing is, is if you want to play this, <clears throat> we can play this pretty easily because in addition to the, uh, running the Kickstarter, they want people to play this game before they back the Kickstarter, if they want to get a feel for it. So they have a print and play option. You just follow the print and play link and it will give you a PDF and you just print it out and cut it up. And there you go. You have everything you need to play the game right there. And just the print and play. And we'll, uh, we're, we're, we'll, of course, both of these Kickstarters will, in, will, uh, put links up on the Facebook page and here and there. So our listeners can find them easily without having to try and search them down. But, um, it's definitely something that it tickled my fancy when I heard about it. I, I, I was pretty excited. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really glad you pointed this one out to talk about because yes. Yes. It is. Oh, that was the one I was gonna do. Now, <laughs> now, I, have to, now I have to do the Gandalf one. And he found that it was precious to me. Unfortunately it doesn't make any sense because he's just, that's the scene where he's reading in the uh, library trying to figure <laughs> out what had happened to the ring. And I don't even remember that was only in the director's cut. But that I know it is what matters. But yeah, with all our Kung Pao and everything, oh, there, there's so much potential, so much potential. <laughs> so, you know, we, we've covered quite a number of items here in tabletop. And so I guess that's probably good because it's almost International Tabletop Day. 
That's right, it is. Uh, April 30th is International Tabletop Day. I've uh, shared already on the Facebook a link so you can find any local places that are having big events on International Tabletop Day. Uh, International Tabletop Day is something that is... I first heard about watching uh, Tabletop on the Geek and Sundry uh, network on on YouTube and all of that. And I know there's a lot of communities that have very that have big events. Uh, I know locally there's two events going on locally on that day. Uh, one of which I've attended the last several years, and I'm talking they're running all day. I know the one I attended last year. They started at 9 a.m. and they were still playing at like two in the morning. And it was just various games. They had over 80 people show up over the course of the day. And <clears throat> it was a lot of fun. And it is just a good place to, to try new games out, meet new friends, meet local people who like playing games and give you a better chance to play more board games and tabletop games and just do other fun stuff. And it's a good way to burn a Saturday. Uh, it doesn't look like I'm going to get to go this year because I will be attending another big uh, gaming-related thing, in this case, pinball. But I don't know. I might pop in for a little bit. We'll see. We'll, we'll see how that day goes. Uh, but I will, I've already put the link on Facebook, and we'll put the links out there so you can look in and find what you can see who's in your nearby area. They've got, they've got uh, groups putting on events all over the world. So you just have to check out the map and see if there's anything near you. Yep. So reminder, that is April 30th. So it is right on top of us. You got about a week. Well, that's pretty much it for our show. Uh, For those that uh, didn't remember or hear at the beginning of it, uh, we do have the Twitter account now at eclectic underscore gamers. We also have our Facebook page, facebook.com slash eclectic gamers podcast. You can email the show. uh, That's eclectic gamers podcast at gmail.com. So those are the three primary ways to get a hold of us. And I guess we will probably do our normal thing and be back on after another couple of weeks. We're being pretty consistent with that, which pleases me. But for the time being, I'm Dennis, and I will say goodbye, everyone. Yes, and I'm Tony. And don't forget to uh, like us and follow us on Stitcher and iTunes. That helps us out a lot. Let's us know that people actually like us. And we will see you in two weeks. Well, hear you in two weeks. You'll hear us, you know, something like that.